wonder why it is they never say, let us stand as we have the sermon. I guess that would... Uh... Sometimes on a Sunday night it might help stay, keep us awake a little more. It, it, there's something for you, no matter who you are, probably tonight. This is a very diverse set of questions that we have in our question and answer. I appreciate very much your sustained interest in this. You continue to, to demonstrate that you want to know more about what God's Word has to say. I think we've said this before, it bears repeating, that we are expressing our best studied uh, thought on the matter. It is not infallible, it is not meant to ascribe doctrine, uh, especially in some of the judgment questions like we have in some places tonight. So we'll proceed the very best that we can. If you have your Bible still open in Romans chapter 9, we're going to deal with the first question And that is, how do we reconcile free will with passages like Romans chapter 9, uh, verse 14 through 21? The idea of free will is something that is certainly established from the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, If we think about the fact that when God made humanity, made Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, he gave them choice, he set there before them the option, though he uh, uh, prohibited such, that there was a tree that bore the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told them that they were not to eat of that tree. And so he gave them choice, a loving and benevolent God, not creating us as robots without the knowledge or the ability to exercise our own will. And the Bible would teach from Genesis chapter 3 forward the idea that God wants us and allows for us to exercise our choice. You may remember, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19 at the end of his life that Moses says to the children of Israel, Behold, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, only choose life that both you and your descendants may live. He laid it out there for them. He said, You make the choice. The choice is yours. Make the right choice because there is a wrong choice, but I leave it up to you. And of course, more famously, the man that followed him, Joshua, at the end of the conquest in Joshua 24 and verse 15 says, If it seems evil to you, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether it be the gods of uh, the uh, your fathers who dwelt on the other side of the river or the god of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will, that is, we exercise our will, serve the Lord. Do you remember also Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 21? He has all the people of Israel and he has the 400 prophets of Baal. And he says, if the Lord be God, then follow him. If Baal be God, then follow him. He is saying, as the Old Testament and the New Testament would tell us, that we exercise the power of choice. We need to choose wisely, but we get to choose. Jesus, throughout his ministry tells us to come. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Our Lord would not say come if we could not come. Our Lord gives us the ability to choose. Now, having said that, we come across some passages that uh, it does us well to set them in their context, to know exactly what the writer is saying. What we need to understand is that Romans 9, 14 through 21, falls within a broader section. And that section is Romans 9 through 11. And in 9 through 11, there are various topics that Paul is addressing for the somewhat doctrinally confused Romans that a church comprised of Gentiles and Jews in which Paul is asserting that God is sovereign. God has the right to act in a way that's consistent with his will that is in accordance with his nature. 
But what he is not teaching here in any of the parts of Romans chapter 9 through 11 is that he prevents us from exercising free will. To understand what's said in verse 14 through 21, it comes right after another Old Testament example. There are a couple in this paragraph in which Paul reaches back into the Old Testament to make his point that we have to follow God's plan. It's his plan and we don't get to choose on our own. He's speaking to the Jews here. And you'll notice in verse 13, he says, the, he cites the scripture in which he says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Incidentally, this is not a quotation of Genesis. This is a quotation of Malachi chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, in which the writer Malachi is making a point that God chose in his plan to bring the seed, Christ, through Jacob. And when he speaks of Jacob in Romans 9, 14 and in Malachi 1, He is speaking of the nation of Israel. And when he's speaking of Esau in Romans 9, in quoting Malachi chapter 1, he's talking about the nation of Edom, which came from Esau. God made the choice that he was going to save humanity through Jacob's descendants, even renaming him Israel. And so God set in motion a choice. And he was going to bring the law to the Jews, Israel. And he was going to bring the Savior Christ... Through Israel. That was God's choice. And so man had to submit to the choice of God. God's dealing with nations, not with individuals who could choose to act in any way that they wished. And so now Paul gets in Romans chapter 9, verse 14 to 21, to talking about uh, what his, his central piece is. And that is, is there unrighteousness with God? No, not at all. God has a plan, but his plan is not ultimately through the Jews. His plan to save goes back to Abraham. That's where he's going to fulfill his promise. And so he he introduces an idea using another illustration from the Old Testament. And that's the idea of Pharaoh and how God used Pharaoh in order to accomplish his purpose. God did not make Pharaoh act in the way in which he acted. God knew how Pharaoh was going to act. And so to demonstrate his greatness, his power to all the nations in the earth, he went ahead with his plan, knowing that Pharaoh in his nature, in his decision making, was going to resist the plan of God. Incidentally, that's what the Jews were doing in Paul's audience. They were resisting God's plan. God's plan is not through uh, the nation of Israel. God's plan is through the person of Christ. And most of the Jews are going to reject that. They're going to resist that. And so God shows us that uh, Pharaoh's a great example of how the Jews are behaving. He says, I'm going to show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And I will harden whom I will. How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? There's not one answer to that. One of the ways that God hardened Pharaoh's heart was in the demand that God through Moses made to Pharaoh. Here is the most powerful man on earth, and here are Moses and Aaron that come into his presence and carries the commission of God, let my people go. The arrogance of Pharaoh would not allow him to soften his heart to such a demand, and so he hardened his heart. But that's not the only way in which God hardened Pharaoh's heart in the activity in the Exodus, or leading up to the Exodus. You have the uh, acts or the miracles that Aaron and Moses perform, and especially those first few signs that he is able to perform, that is Moses and Aaron, 
the magicians of Pharaoh are also able to perform. And so as Pharaoh examines this, it further hardens his heart because his people are able to do what Moses and Aaron are able to do in Exodus chapter 7 and chapter 8. Another way that God hardened Pharaoh's heart was in the relief that God brought to Pharaoh and the Egyptians after several of the plagues. And it's starting in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 16 where the Bible tells us that when this happened, when there was a relief from the plague that came upon them, that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Do you remember so often that Pharaoh would plead with Moses and with Aaron to let this plague just go away? And when God did that, he hardened his heart. It happens again in Exodus chapter 9, verse 34, and in Exodus chapter 10, in verse 16. So here's what we have. We have Paul laying out before the Jews and his audience a picture that they would have known from their Old Testament past. And that is that God demonstrated his power, his greatness among all the nations by determining to follow his course of action, his savior, his plan of salvation, his conditions of mercy. Pharaoh resisted it and God used him to further his plan. And the same thing happens in the time in which Paul is writing. Many of the Jews, you go on in Romans chapter 10, they rejected the righteousness of God and they set about to establish their own righteousness and so they would not be saved by the righteousness of God. Paul, not, not here, not anywhere else, does Paul or any other writer teach that God overtakes or overrides our will. That God allows us to choose, but we've got to choose his way and not our own way. I know there's more to be said about that. Maybe that draws more questions, but at least it's a starting point in our study. Another question that we were asked is, did God create the angels, or did the angels coexist with God, and ultimately the angels recognize that God was more powerful than they are, or superior beings? Now looking back, having a completed New Testament, that seems to be a pretty straightforward answer for us. In fact, Colossians chapter 1, 16 and 17, I believe, single-handedly, answers the question of the one that posed this question. Uh, but it was a problem... It's been a problem throughout the ages that some have worshipped angels. In the very next chapter, in Colossians 2, in verse 18, Paul addresses the false worship of angels. But in the first chapter, to establish that Christ is supreme above all, and that Christ has come to make every man complete, he tells us that one of the reasons why he can do this is that he is the creator of all things. He created all things, uh, and by him all things came into being. Uh, the things that are in heaven, the things that are in earth, whether visible or invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him or by him all things are held together. Paul establishes that God is the creator of all things. Notice how he uses the word all. You'll count that four times in those two verses. That all things were created by him. He is before all things, establishing there for us, for our questioner, the answer, and that would include, of course, the angels. It would say something about their nature, they're created, and it would say something about his nature, that he is superior to them. And it also harmonizes with other passages of Scripture. In John chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We see that that Word is Christ in John 1 and verse 14. Uh, he, the same was in the beginning with God, 
And all things came into being through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are made. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6. And so God, specifically God the Son, is the creator of all things, including the angels, and through this establishes his superior nature. The third question that was asked tonight is, did Jesus go to hell for us so that we did not have to suffer eternally? The way that I originally planned to answer this was to draw out about three or four different things that are thought and then come back and answer them all. It may be a little less confusing if I'll just bring out one and then answer that and work our way all the way through. I don't know if you ever heard that before. The idea that Jesus went to hell That Jesus between, or the question may be asked, where was Jesus between his death and his resurrection? I think some of our confusion comes, frankly put, from some of the doctrines in the creeds of men. And when I say creeds, I I specifically mean that in the Apostles' Creed and in the Athanasian Creed, this idea is conveyed for us. Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin and other theologians have stated as much. And they say that uh, the question then becomes, where do such ideas or doctrines originate? And I don't know that I can give you one answer, but what I'd like to do is to look at some of the things that are said that lead people to believe this. I think one of the reasons why people believe that Jesus went to Gehenna, the place of eternal punishment and suffering, is because of the misservice that was done by our early translators. I believe there was a doctrinal bias as much as there was an evolution in the English language. I've heard that, and I don't find it a sufficient answer to say that the word hell meant something er, uh, different earlier in the English language. There are two distinct Greek words. That's the thing about the Greek language. They're very concrete terms that we don't have to worry about uh, the writer meaning one thing and using the wrong word. It's not an abstract language like the Hebrew language is. And so there is a word for the place of the dead. It's found ten times in your New Testament. The word is Hades. And the word Hades is the realm of the dead. The righteous dead and the unrighteous dead. Again, as I say, it's found ten times. The word for eternal punishment is Gehenna. It is found some 14 times. Most of the time that it's found in the New Testament, Jesus is the one that uses that word. And so when... We read in Acts chapter 2 in the King James, for example, in verse 27 in the Sermon on Pentecost, that Peter says that, uh, you, uh, that uh, thou would not uh, keep, uh, keep my soul in hell or suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. He's speaking of the resurrection, said, thou would not leave my soul in hell or suffer my flesh to see corruption. That's Acts 2, 27 and 31. Problem there is this is not Gehenna. This is Hades. This is the realm of the dead. Where did Jesus go in the realm of the dead? From what we see in the New Testament, there are two realms of the dead. All we need to do is go to Luke chapter 16. And in verse 23 through 25, we see both of these realms demonstrated for us. When we see the angels carried uh, Lazarus to Abraham's bosom... He is in that place that Jesus told the penitent thief that he was going in Luke chapter 23 and verse 43. He says, today I shall be with you in paradise. On the other side, there is that chains of darkness, that Tartarus that's spoken of in 2 Peter chapter 2. We have this place reserved for the ungodly 
It's the place where the rich man was. It is certainly a place where there's suffering, that's torment, that's described for us, but it is the the realm of the unrighteous dead. So when we see that word hell in Luke 16.23 in the King James, it should be Hades. The word for hell is the one that's used in Luke chapter 12 and verse 5, where Jesus says, fear the one that is able to destroy both your body and your soul in hell. So if we understand our words and our translations, and modern translations have eliminated that, that confusion, we understand that Jesus did not go to hell or was not left in hell in Acts chapter 2 and some other passages that might say the same. Another reason why people may have this idea is an admittedly difficult passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 in verse 18 through 20 where the Apostle Peter is about to make a point about uh, how we are, are saved and how God used water in Noah's day and how he uses it in the era of Christ. And you remember that it first says that Christ died for all, the just for the unjust, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits that are now in prison, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being constructed, wherein a few, that is eight, were saved through water. Some would say, Does it, it seems to me that Jesus, and by the way, what confuses this is that there's an extra-biblical doctrine that describes a place of an intermediate state of the dead. That they would say, in addition to paradise, in addition to um, uh, that place uh, of Tartarus for the unrighteous dead, in addition to heaven and hell, that there's a place of purgatory. And they would try to say that that's what's going on here. No other mention of this idea anywhere in Scripture. It contradicts passages like Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 that says that after death, then we go and we face the judgment. There's no place for us to work our way out of through any kind of works. That's a doctrine that came along well after the New Testament. But they would say, try to say that this passage tells us that Jesus goes into the place where the people have left this life and are in their place of eternal waiting and he preaches to them. All right, we can ask some questions of the text, I think, that will help us. We need to ask ourselves, how did Jesus preach to those individuals in 1 Peter chapter 3? Well, Peter, interestingly enough, is going to mention Noah, not just in the first letter, but also in the second letter. In the second letter, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, he will refer to him as a preacher of righteousness. I find it interesting that the book of Genesis does not detail this part of Noah's ministry. Moses is focused more on God's way of escape, the, the ark that's constructed. And so you'll see that Noah's work is trying to accomplish the grace and mercy of God by allowing a place for all those who will to come on board and to be saved from destruction. But he is there among the people, and how many ever people there were, however widely he did his evangelistic tour, he is preaching to those who live, including those certainly that are disobedient. When did he do so? I think we've answered that. In the days of Noah, when the ark was being constructed. And to whom was the preaching done? Our Lord, in the Spirit, preached to those who are now in prison before they were. 
He went and he preached to them in their lifetime, which is when preaching is done. You remember in Luke chapter 16, you have the rich man in torment, and he says, please send uh, Lazarus back that he may preach to my brothers. Here's a perfect opportunity. And Abraham says, there's a great gulf that's fixed between, and there's not going to be a passing from the one to the other. There's the word that's given. Let them listen to that, and that's their opportunity. That's God's plan. In the lifetime of individuals, to hear the gospel, to make a choice... Our Lord didn't make an exception to that. Peter's making a point that through Peter the preaching was done and in the same way we have the the opportunity for salvation. One other thing to say about this is that there are some who construe certain passages to teach that our Lord became sinful or took on the sins of the world more accurately in that he became guilty in our place absorbing that for all those that would live righteously and be obedient to the gospel. Not sure I understand how one arrives at such a position, but we'll use passages like 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. He himself bare our sins in his body on the cross. Or Galatians 3 and verse 13, uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us. Or Isaiah 53 and verse 6, the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Well, it's helpful for us to do a couple of things. First of all, go back to the Old Testament system. From the very beginning, you will have God demonstrating how the innocent must be given for the guilty. The sacrifice is effective. It's effectual because the sacrifice that's given is one that's without blemish, without defect. First Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19, that's our lamb, Jesus. And so what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 18, 3, 18 has bearing on this. That Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust. He became a curse for us by bearing in our sin, our body, uh, his body, our sins. And so he's separate from sinners. He is not a sinner, did no sin. But being the innocent lamb, he could be the substitute for a guilty world. That's what Peter and that's what Paul and that's what other New Testament writers are saying to us in the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 10 and verse 10, that's how he could once and for all bear our sins in his body. All right, fourth question. Is lifting holy hands and clapping inherently sinful? There's a saying that goes that fools go where wise men fear to tread, but we'll see where I fall in that tonight. I want to begin by saying that on more than one occasion, the Apostle Paul dealt with matters by saying that all things are lawful, but not all things are productive. 1 Corinthians 6.12 and 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 23. I find myself in an awkward position of dealing with something that may, in the context we'll talk about, be lawful, but may not be productive. Let me deal with each of these in their turn. The first has to do with lifting of holy hands. Now, I want to say at the outset that what you are familiar with, if you'll watch religious services today, when you see people who are raising their hands, that has no real bearing to what you'll see on the pages of the New Testament. You find this expression, the lifting of holy hands, uh, over 50 times in the Bible. And the idea, especially to the Near Eastern mind, would be the posture of begging and pleading. And so when you find individuals raising holy hands, there's this idea of a heartfelt 
uh, open and bare, petitioning to God to help. And so more like somebody who's pleading for their life in in that kind of picture in your mind, not what we see in kind of emotions getting uh, the best of us in, in certain circumstances and seeing that. Having said that, we'll go to passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 where the Apostle Paul says, I will therefore that men everywhere pray lifting holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, would it be okay for someone in the exercise of leading us in prayer in the assembly to raise their hands in the posture of prayer? It'd be fine. But we need to understand that that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's making two very important points And one that sometimes we neglect. The first is, he's telling us who it is that he wants to be leading in worship. If you'll look at the next few verses, he talks about how uh, that women are not to teach or to have authority over the man. Well, first he talks about using, uh, I believe, a, a bit of autonomy, using one act of worship for the entire worship setting. He says, I want men, specific word for man there, to be the ones who are leading in prayer. But there's a second thing that he's doing here. He is not so much dealing with the posture. He is dealing with who it is, the character of those who can lead us in worship. And who is that? It is those who are holy, not perfect, but those who are living godly, righteous lives. He even qualifies that by saying, without wrath and without doubting. Who does not need to be leading us in prayer? If there's somebody who hasn't been in worship for a year and they find that their name's on the duty roster and they come and show up to lead us in prayer, there's a good chance that they're not living a holy life. Or if somebody is out there in the world cussing like a sailor around every corner, cheating and lying, and, and but on Sunday morning or Sunday night when it's time to lead prayer, they get up here and they lead us in prayer, they are not those with holy hands. They are not those that are described like Paul here. That's the focus of that passage. And then there's clapping. Now, I want to divide that into two categories. First of all, if we're talking about clapping as it regards the accompaniment of our songs in either devotional times or in worship, what we need to recognize is that what is called for in Ephesians 5 and verse 19 and Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 is verbal and vocal. You'll notice the words singing, teaching, admonishing. Those are vocal, verbal But when we accompany that with our hands, we introduce a different category. It is non-vocal, it is non-verbal, and therefore it is not authorized per those passages. Alright, so what about, and the questioner asks, what about with regard to clapping after a baptism or clapping when somebody is receiving a Bible or in the custom of giving a Bible to one of our young families? Let me say this by way of preface. It is just as wrong for us to make a law that God has not made, as it is for us to break a law that God has made. We want to be very careful to examine, and those two particular things, whether we're talking about the Bible or if we're talking about uh, a baptism, are not acts of worship. We have a, a lot different problem if we make those part of the worship assembly. We have authority issues now. Now, having established that, we ask ourselves, how do we demonstrate approval for circumstances like that? And let me say this, it is a cultural matter. It is a matter of how the culture sees it. It is also a matter of church culture. If something makes me uncomfortable, does not make it right or wrong. However, 
when it comes to who makes the decisions about those kinds of things, there are some other factors that come into play that we must be equally respectful of. And what I mean is this. We are led by shepherds, and those shepherds have a very weighty task. They are weighing the various decisions that are made, and they're trying to communicate that the very best way that they can. And so here's what they have to factor in. Is a practice going to be confusing? Is it going to be offensive? Is there a way that seems to be more unifying and a way that seems to be less unifying? You see, our elders don't legislate with regard to matters of doctrine. Our Lord has already done that. But they are those who watch for our souls. And Hebrews 13 and verse 17 makes that clear. And so it is legitimate and right if our elders say we believe that for the sake of unity that we are going to refrain from a particular practice. Now, when it comes to someone being baptized, let me make this particular point. I think that we need to do all that we can to demonstrate joy and exuberance. For a long time, it's been my custom, as soon as somebody's coming up out of the water, if I'm not actually the one who's doing the baptizing, I will sing immediately. I want them to hear the rejoicing. I want them to hear our enthusiasm. Because I remember something when I was growing up. You may have been told the same thing, that the person that you marry is the second most important decision that you'll ever make in your life. And what do we do for the second most important decision? We have a cake, we have a special clothes they put on, we even have a reception after that. And what do we do sometimes after somebody's baptized? We need to make sure that they know how excited that we are about what they did. I believe, this is I'm expressing my opinion, this is in First Pollard chapter 3 and verse 1. I believe that we can echo what's going on in Luke chapter 15 when somebody is brought into the fold of God. Isn't it beautiful? For us to be able to, for them to hear in unison us as we sing praise to God or a song in recognition of what they've done. So I, that may or may not be satisfying to you, but I, I tried to give an honest and even-handed answer to that question. This may be my last Q&A. I don't know. We'll see. Um, our, our last one is, who is a Christian? Now let me say to this, that the short answer is, is not everybody who says or believes that they are. You know, our Lord makes this clear in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. He says, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name done many wonderful works? And I will say unto them, depart from me, you who work iniquity, I never knew you. You know, it, it's very accommodative language. And I appreciate what we're trying to say when we are asking about certain individuals and we say that they're Christians. But sometimes we may believe that we are Christians or that others are Christians that the Bible does not indicate to be Christians. And I'm going to just give you a few categories of that on our way to the answer. For example, there are some who would say, I've heard this said, that if you are an American, you are a Christian. And the, the thinking is that America is, or at least at one time it was, or is considered often in the global stage, to be a Christian nation. Well, we understand that. That the Bible tells us that God has one nation. It's the church. It's his holy nation. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. It's not a physical country. And so one might look at Americans and say, oh, they're Christians. It's a Christian nation. That's not who a Christian is in the Bible. Somebody might say, a good moral person is a Christian. 
But let me help you to think about this, that in every world religion, there are good people. Now, it is important for us to not only be good people, to be surrounded by good people. I would rather live in a neighborhood of good people, wouldn't you? I, I, I like the thought of my neighbors paying their taxes and being honest in their business dealings and taking care of their family, but that by itself does not make one a Christian. Our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Isaiah 64 and verse 6, we're not able to present a good life before the throne of God as an appeasement for our sins. If that were so, then Christ would never have had to die. We recognize that works are not going to, on their own, by themselves or of themselves, make one a Christian. So being a good moral person is not enough. Here's another one. Someone would say that somebody who is a believer in Jesus Christ, who has acknowledged their faith in Christ, is a Christian. Now let's think about that principally for just a moment. This is before the church is established, but it's a very vital point that's made in passing in John chapter 12 and verse 42, where it says that many of the rulers of the synagogue believed in Jesus. But for fear of the, of the Pharisees, they would not confess him lest they be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Here we have a class of individuals who believed in Jesus, but would not confess him. A stronger argument maybe is made in James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, in a, really the application point is, is that when we see people in benevolent need and we don't help them, our faith is not... Uh, effective if it doesn't bear works. But there's a principal application that faith without works is dead being alone. The demons believe and tremble, but that faith by itself does not save them. There are individuals who believe that they were a Christian at the point of their faith when they prayed a prayer accepting Jesus in their heart by faith. And we say this, endeavoring to be loving and kind, there's not a New Testament example or passage that bears that out. There are those who would say that they are Christians based on the fact of, the fact of being a member of a church. When we realize that there are some churches out there who, in the name of their religion, don't even, they would be considered almost, if not mainstream, that is, that we all know some who are members of religious bodies who would say that Jesus is not deity, that he's not the Son of God. There are churches that teach things that are very far from the truth. There are hundreds of churches that were established upon the teachings of men and that teach things that are far different from the New Testament. I believe it was Wayne Jackson that said that all Christians are in the church of our Lord, but not all church members are Christians. There are also those who say that, the, that being baptized is what makes one a Christian. But that point by itself and alone, especially using that terminology, does not necessarily match with what Scripture says. For example, there are some who have been baptized before they were capable of believing. But we look in Mark 16 and verse 16, and Jesus would tell us, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. We see so many examples of conversions in the book of Acts, like the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, or the Corinthians who, believing, were baptized in, first, in Acts 18 and verse 8, we see the pattern that one has to make an informed decision about Christ before one can uh, become a child of God to become a Christian. And so we could baptize one before they're, or we could 
have someone in, in water before they're able to understand what they're doing, that would not make them a Christian according to the New Testament. There are some who believe that they were baptized through sprinkling and pouring. And yet the Bible would teach us that baptism is a burial. In Romans 6 and verse 4, we see it again in Colossians 2 and verse 12. We see the example of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. They got out of the chariot, they went down into the water, and they came out of it. In Jesus' baptism in Matthew 4 and Mark 1, they got, they went to the, Jesus went to the water, into the water, and came up out of the water. There's significance in that, the burial. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried in a tomb, and he came out the third day. And so Paul is saying, with that in mind, we see that in baptism, we imitate. We die to self and to sin. We are buried with Christ, and we're raised to walk in newness of life. We're resurrected from the old man, and we are the new man. And then there are uh, passages that would teach us that one must understand and respond and become a child of God through a baptism that's preceded by hearing God's word, Romans 10 and verse 17, repenting, Romans 6 and verse 17, and confessing Christ with the mouth, Romans chapter 10 and verse 10. Probably there's more to be said about that. Three times the New Testament uses the word Christian. It's in Acts 11, 26, Acts 26, 28, and 1 Peter 4 and verse 16. In Acts 11 and verse 26, we see that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. All right, so we ask ourselves, who's a Christian? A Christian is a disciple. How does one become a disciple, a follower of Jesus? They're going to follow what Jesus says. Jesus does his saying both by what he taught in the Gospels and what the apostles and prophets taught in the rest of the New Testament. And it makes it's made clear that what's involved in that is not a single thing, but it is culminated by a faith-filled, penitent believer who is immersed in water for the purpose of being forgiven of their sins. In 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse 16, the Bible says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in this name let him glorify God. For it is t- the time has come that judgment must begin at the household of God. And if it first begin with us, what shall be the end of those that obey not the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And so if there are those who have obeyed not, who is Peter comparing those who have obeyed the gospel to? It's the Christian in verse 16. So the question is, how does one obey the gospel? The answer to that question is the same answer to who is a Christian. How does one obey the gospel? All we've got to do is go back to the very beginning when Jesus was preached for the first time. They asked men and brethren, what shall we do? And from that day forward, the consistent message in the New Testament is, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. The Christians are those who are added to the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. And thus we see that those who are Christians are those who the New Testament identifies. And I certainly want to be kind. We find ourselves in some awkward situations. We're not trying to start a debate in the first few moments with someone. It's kind of like when somebody comes up to me and says, Hey, uh, Reverend Pollard, I'm not going to correct them. I don't have a relationship with them. I don't know them. And it could be that we're having some conversations where maybe it's not the time at this moment for me to deal with exactly who is and who is not a Christian. I need a relationship. I need a foundation. I need to be able to establish the authority The answer to all these questions, remember, we've said it many times, it's not who's right, it's what's right. It's not me versus you, or my religion versus your religion, it's what does the Bible say, 
what does Christ want us to do? We can have confidence in that. And that's all that we should have our confidence in. This evening it may be that there's somebody who's ready to become a Christian. We're ready to help you. Maybe that you're a child of God and you need to be restored to fellowship or maybe you would like for us to pray for you for strength, for help with something that you're dealing with right now. It would be our honor. You're our family. We would love to do that. This is your invitation. We invite you to come right now as we stand and sing.